Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. And I will echo Jake in saying it is good to have Charlie with us uh, this weekend. Uh, not being with his family so that he could be with us. So we appreciate you uh, being with us this weekend. And of course, as we've already acknowledged, it is Mother's Day. I'm sure you were aware of that already. And so my dilemma is the same every year. Traditionally, what we do on Mother's Day is we talk about how wonderful mothers are. We praise mothers. And then a month later, we come to Father's Day and we preach a sermon about how fathers ought to do better. I don't know why it is that way, but that is the traditional way we do it in the church. And so we might talk this morning about all the important things that a mother does, all of the teaching that she gives her children, the character that she strives to instill in them, the skills that will prepare them for life, the athletic abilities that she travels with them too on a constant basis, making sure they are at all of their required events. Or we might talk about the training and the teaching that she gives, the service that is unending, the love that she pours out for her children, or the way that she provides for everything that they need. All of these are, of course, important, and all of these are functions of what a mother does, especially a Christian mother. And so we could turn to Proverbs 31 and go through that list there of all that a mother does on behalf of her children and on behalf of her family. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the passage of Scripture that we are going to look at today, we're going to continue our series in Colossians. And so I'm not, I'm not getting out of this book in order to talk to you about mothers. But I want to suggest to you from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that here in these verses, we in fact do find the most important task of a mother. Here is the greatest priority for mom with her family. Here is the greatest priority for mom with her children. And here is the greatest priority for mom for herself. Now, I could say the same thing about dads, but it's not Father's Day. So everything I'm going to say from this passage is equally valid for fathers, for men, for women, for every follower of Jesus Christ. Because here we find the verse that I've been alluding to since we began this study. That is Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. That in all things, he, that is Christ, might have the preeminence. We are talking today about the preeminent Christ. Living your life in a manner that demonstrates that Christ is indeed preeminent in your life. Make no mistake about it, we're going to see that Christ is preeminent. There's no doubt about that. The question is, is he preeminent in your life? And are you as a mother or a father teaching the preeminence of Christ to your children? This passage of Scripture is without a doubt the most famous passage in all of this letter of Colossians. 
And it is one of, if not the, most significant Christological passage in the entirety of the New Testament. It is a significant and beautiful passage of Scripture. And so I want you to pay careful attention this morning as we talk about the preeminent Christ. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." We're going to see two basic sections this morning, two stanzas. The first is the fact that he is preeminent in creation, verses 15 through 17. And then we are going to talk about the fact that he is also preeminent in redemption, verses 18 through 20. Now, you may recall that I said last week that verses 9 through 20 is actually one long sentence in the original. I know there's a lot of periods in your English versions, but in the original, this is one long sentence. And yet, we have divided it up because there is so much here. And even in looking at it over the span of two weeks, we are not going to be able to dive into all of the depths theologically and practically that we see here concerning Christ. You will recall that Paul began with a thanksgiving, as he normally does in his letters. He began with a thanksgiving for the life, for the faith, hope, and love of these Colossian believers. He's thanking God for them, even though, as we said, he does not know them personally. He has never been to this city. He was not the founder of the church. And then we said in verse 9 that there begins the content of his prayer. He is thanking God for them, and then he is praying on their behalf. And in verse 13, Paul mentions that the believers have been transferred from one kingdom to another. And notice the present tense. You have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It is not just a future hope, but it is also a present reality. And just the mention of the beloved son leads Paul then into these verses that we are looking at this morning. A praise for who Christ is and what he has done. Now, if you were raised in a Southern Baptist church, you grew up occasionally singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We called it the doxology. Some churches sang it every Sunday, perhaps as they brought up the offering. It was an early praise chorus to God. You know, praise choruses became popular in the 80s or 90s, I guess. But the reality is we've been singing praise choruses not only as long as we've been alive, but Christians have been singing praise choruses as long as there's been Christians. And what we find in verses 15 through 20 is what we might call a hymn or a praise chorus to God. 
It may or may not have been sung by the early Christians, but it's clear that this is a hymn or a chorus. Now, the question that scholars have been debated, debating for years is, has Paul incorporated a known hymn or praise chorus into his text? That is, this was, a, this was something that was outside of Paul's writings that he was aware of, and now he's brought it in. Or secondly, has he brought it in and yet adapted it to his own purposes? Or thirdly, has Paul written this himself? And the bottom line is, we don't know. And it really doesn't matter. Because whether Paul wrote it himself, adapted it, or pulled it in from another source, the very fact that he includes it here makes it the inspired word of God. This is scripture, whether it's original with him or not, and it exalts Christ on his behalf and on our behalf. Now, the word preeminence means superior to something or someone. And I'm going to use that word a lot. So you need to know what that word means. Preeminent superior to someone or something. And Paul is going to make the case that Christ is superior to all and everything. He is preeminent over all things, which means he must be first place in our lives. There is nothing in this world, there is nothing in the supernatural world that Christ is not superior to. And the Colossian believers needed to be reminded of this because, again, they were in danger from some false teachers. We don't know all of the details. We try to piece it together, but we simply don't know all of the specifics. But there is some kind of danger coming into this church, as there has always been throughout Christian history. And the danger centered on something like Christ, yes. They weren't denying Christ, but they were simply saying you needed more. Christ evidently wasn't sufficient for salvation and for sanctification. And therefore, there was something else needed in order for you to grow and prosper in your Christian life. If you really wanted to be spiritual, you needed some other element to supplement the person and work of Christ. And there is always a danger in adding something to Christianity. Various groups through the years have worshipped Mary have overemphasized spiritual gifts, have elevated angels or other supernatural beings to a place of prominence. And this is just to name a few of the various things that have come our way over the years. Certainly Mary is due a place of honor for her role in bearing the Christ child. Spiritual gifts are definitely necessary in order to do the work of the ministry. Angels and supernatural beings are real and they should be acknowledged. However, if any of these, or anything else for that matter, begins to take priority over Christ, then we have misunderstood the person and work of Jesus. And in these few verses, Paul is calling us back to the centrality of Jesus Christ. A Christ who is superior, who is preeminent over all things. So first of all, we see him preeminent in creation. Now, when we think of Christ and creation, or when we think of creation, we go back to the first few chapters of Genesis where we read the account of God creating the world. Typically, we view this as God the Father, with almost no thought of Jesus having anything to do with the initial creation. After all, we might conclude that Jesus doesn't even come on the scene until that fateful night in Bethlehem. But of course, that's not exactly true. 
In fact, Paul paints an entirely different picture in this passage. He relates Jesus to creation and reminds us that he is due praise for his role in that great event. Now, I'm certainly not taking anything away from God the Father. I'm simply acknowledging that Jesus had a role in it as well. So he is preeminent in creation because, number one, he is God. Well, you say that's an obvious statement. I mean, we've been in church all of our lives. We know that Jesus is God. We don't have to acknowledge that truth. And yet there has always been heresies that deny the deity of Christ. A man by the name of Arian, way back in the early centuries of Christianity, began to believe and teach that Jesus was a created being, that he was not God. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why the Nicene Creed, you've probably heard of that, it's one of the reasons why that was put out to teach against this heresy. And so in that creed, it says that Jesus is the eternally begotten of the Father. But it's not just in the early centuries that the deity of Christ is denied. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the ones who come knocking at your door, they do not believe that Jesus is God. They come to you with a very good message in their minds, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and yet they deny the deity of Jesus. They try to mask this by quoting Scripture. But the next time they come knocking on your door, instead of muting the TV and hiding, how about going to the door and focus the conversation with them, not on what they want to talk about, but focus the conversation on whether or not Jesus is God. They will talk to you about the fact that he was a wise teacher. They will acknowledge with you that he is a wonderful example, but they will not agree with you that he is God. And as I was taught many years ago by Adrian Rogers, if they are wrong about Jesus, it does not matter what else they are right about. And so there is a, nor there is a group, even in our own day, that's very well known that denies the very thing that we are acknowledging this morning. Paul says that Jesus is worthy of our praise because he is the image of God. That word image is the Greek word icon, a copy or a likeness. Now, sometimes we misunderstand what that means because of the use of the word image. This is Mother's Day. So when a child is born, what is one of the first conversations that we have? What does, who, who does he or she look like? What resemblances, what likeness, what image do you see in this child? I get that question when I go visit a hospital with a new child. They'll say to me, preacher, which one do you think he looks like? And I hate that question because I just, it's a child, it's a baby. That's what it looks like. But that's what we talk about, and that's what we talked about when our kids were born. Which, which resemblance do they have? What do they look like? And then as they grow older, the, their, their mannerisms, even their personalities begin to show semblances to, to us. And yet at the same time, in spite of the likeness, the image, we recognize that we are different individuals. We use that word image to speak of a, a picture. The, the image of a president on, on our dollar bills or on our coins. Every time you pay with something, there is a likeness. In fact, Jesus uses this same word when he talks about paying taxes to Caesar. He says, whose image, same word, whose image is on this coin? So it is a picture. 
But the best way to understand what he's talking about here is not with the analogy of a baby or a coin, but the analogy of a mirror. When you look in the mirror, you see an image of yourself. But it's more than just a picture. A mirror produces an exact representation of who you are. And that's why we don't like what we see in a mirror. Because it is an exact replica, an exact image of who we are. And that's the way the word is used here. Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. He does not merely have some qualities of God. He does not merely have some attributes that are similar to God. He is God. And therefore, he is preeminent. Secondly, he is preeminent in creation, not only because he's God, but because he is ruler. That's what it means there when it says in verse 15 that he is firstborn of all creation. This does not mean, and I hate to pick on the Jehovah's Witnesses again, but they're a good target and their church is just down the street. <laughs> this does not mean as they teach that Jesus is the firstborn of all creatures in the sense that he was born. That is a misunderstanding of what this text says. In fact, if you read the New World Translations, which I do not encourage you to do, it says in this verse, because by him all other things were created in heaven and upon earth. They add the word other. And in fact, they even put a bracket around the word other to show that it is not in the original. And they do it several times in this passage. You say, well, why do they add the word other? Because it changes the theology. Because now Jesus is the creator of all other creatures, meaning that he himself is also created. But that is not what this text says. Jesus was not created by God in the sense that all other creatures are. He is eternal. The word firstborn can indeed be used in reference to time and creation, but it can also be used in reference to rank. And so the idea here is that he is supreme over all of creation. It is not saying that he is born in the sense that we are born. It is saying that he is superior to all created things. He is the firstborn of all creation. And as such, he is preeminent and ruler of all. Thirdly, we notice that he is preeminent in creation because he is creator of all things. Now, we've already basically touched on this, but I want to highlight it again from verse 16. Again, we often talk about God the Father being creator, but verse 16 clearly says that Jesus was active in this as well. And not only did he create all things, but notice at the end of verse 16, all things were created for him. We often miss this point. This world was not primarily made for you and I to enjoy. It was not created primarily so that we can demonstrate how powerful, smart, and creative we are. It was ultimately created to bring glory to God. It was created for the purpose of the glory and pleasure of God. And yet men think so highly of ourselves that we believe God created it for our happiness. And yes, there is a lot of happiness that we can get here. But everything you see around you was created for one thing, and that one thing was to bring glory to God. Now, obviously, everything is not living up to that. 
the fact that sin has come into our world and not only damaged us, but damaged all of creation, has marred the glory and plan of God. But that does not negate the reason it was created. Because the creation has been misused and abused, it does not bring the glory to God that it should. And because we are sinners who then sin because of our nature, we too do not bring glory to God as we should. But that does not change the fact that everything we see around us was not only created by God, but it was created for God to bring him praise and bring him glory. So when you look at that beautiful sunrise or beautiful sunset, so when you go to the beach this summer and enjoy the, the sounds and the sights of the waves rolling in, so when you see all of the things that you enjoy on a daily basis, and you tend to think these things were made by man, these things were created by the hands of a man, and certainly in one sense they were. But in another sense, all things were created by him, and all things were created for him. And that is another reason why he is preeminent. You will notice eight times in these verses the word all. Now, if you begin to count them and you don't come up with eight, it's because sometimes it's translated something else, like everything or everyone. But eight times there is the Greek word for all in here, telling us just how preeminent Christ is. Verse 17, he is also preeminent in creation because he sustains or holds all things together. The King James Version says, by him all things consists. That means that not only do we exist because we are created by God, but we continue to exist because we are sustained by God. You are sitting here in this sanctuary this morning. You are listening online or watching online this morning, all because God at this moment in Christ is sustaining you, allowing you to continue to breathe. It is hard work to sustain the things that we own. Our houses need constant attention or they will fall into disrepair. That is why your, your wife might on this Mother's Day give you a to-do list of things around the home because there is constantly a need for things to be done. Our automobiles constantly need gas and oil and frequent repairs if they are going to continue to operate. Our computers that do so many wonderful things for us need constant repair. Because while we praise them for their productivity at one minute, the next they contract a virus and become a major headache. Our bodies need attention if we are to attain or sustain this level of health. And we take all of these things for granted. But in reality, all of this exists because of the sustaining power of Christ. Yes, we are to feed ourselves and exercise and, and get the rest we need and take vitamins and all of those things. But if Christ does not allow and sustain our hearts that we can breathe, our lungs that we can breathe, and our heart that it can pump blood, then we will cease to exist. I was listening to a, a Zoom call this week with the four men who are um, in line to be the next president of the Southern Baptist Convention when we meet in June. And one of them told the story of him and his brother. He was 16, his brother was 14. And they were both athletes and very good athletes at that age. And they were out running one evening on a cool night, trying to stay in shape. And his 14-year-old brother just fell over dead. 14 years old. Reminding us 
that it is God in Christ who sustains our life. That if he were not at this very moment allowing us to breathe and our hearts to beat, we would cease to exist. He is not only a creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things. Hebrews tells us that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Years ago, I remember sitting with an oncologist as he was explaining cancer to Tracy and I. Much of it is still a mystery, of, of, of course, to us. But he was telling us that when a healthy cell recreates another cell, hopefully another healthy cell, there are so many things that can go wrong. And it only takes one thing going wrong for that healthy cell to create an abnormal cell which can lead to cancer. And here's what he said as a response to that. He said, it is a wonder that all of us don't get cancer as infants and die. There are so many things that can go wrong in the human body, he said, that it's a wonder any of us live beyond infancy. And as he was saying that, I was reminded of these verses. That it's not a wonder. It is because Christ is sustaining us. He who created us is also sustaining us. And therefore, he is preeminent in creation. Secondly, he is preeminent in redemption, or what we might call re-creation. In fact, here we have the two main themes of the entire Bible. God created us. And God recreates us or redeems us. And therefore, he is Lord over creation, and he is Lord over new creation. In his role as redeemer, we notice that Christ is preeminent because he is Lord of the church. How we need to hear this over and over again. How we need to be constantly reminded that this church is not my church. This church is not the staff's church. This church is not the deacon's church. This church is not your church. This church belongs to Christ who is the head and no one is to compete with him. That is why in the Bible several times we see this analogy when it comes to the church of the body. That is, the body is made up of many parts. All of those parts have different functions, but all of those parts come together to function as one. And Christ is the head of that body. We know that in our bodies, it is the head that gives us direction. In spite of what we learned in Italian about the neck rotating everything, we know that physically it is the head. You try this this afternoon. Not really, but if you can, you want to. Put your hand on a hot stove. Your nerve endings in your hand are going to send a message to your brain. Your brain, in turn, is going, to, is going to interpret the message, and it is going to say, that's hot, and it's going to send a message back to your fingers. All of this happening almost instantaneously, and it's going to send a message back to your hand saying, get your hand off of that stove. The brain is what, the head is what functions to tell the rest of the body what to do. And likewise, though we can't press this in every circumstance, it is Christ as the head of the church, which means he is the Lord of the church, directing our actions, controlling our movements. It is Christ who established the church and commanded us to make disciples. I want you to understand that we are not a civic organization founded by man. We are not a country club that pulls together people who are like-minded so that we can have fellowship and enjoyment. 
We are the church, the living body of Christ, which is one reason why the church demands our allegiance above and beyond all of these other man-made organizations. Because Christ is the head, we must strive to follow his commands in all circumstances. And that is why we consistently point us back to Scripture as a lamp unto unto our feet and a light unto our path. That is why there are times, and frankly, those times are going to increase when we have to make unpopular decisions and we have to take unpopular stances. And I'm telling you, that's going to increase in our secular and increasingly secular culture where the church is going to have to stand on unpopular stances because Christ is our head. He is Lord of the church. Secondly, he is Lord over death. Paul says that he is firstborn from the dead. This is not just an Easter message. This is an every Sunday message. Christ conquered death. And because he rose from the dead, he is the firstborn, meaning that more are to follow. You are well aware, I suppose, of the story of Lazarus, one of the friends of Jesus who died, and Jesus delayed his coming. And by the time he got there, Lazarus had been in the grave multiple days, but Jesus called him out of the grave. He resurrected him from death. And he commanded that the grave clothes be taken off. Now, can you imagine that happening? Can you imagine going to the funeral of a friend? And then when you make your way back out to the parking lot, there stands that friend next to the car. I imagine there's going to be a mixture of fear and joy. And I imagine that's what Mary and Martha thought. But you also understand, though, the Bible does not record it. That Lazarus, I don't know how many years he lived after that, but he died again. And this time, in that sense, he wasn't resurrected. He faced death just like every man, woman, boy, and girl must unless Christ comes. However, for the believer, there is hope beyond the grave. And that hope rests in the person of Christ. He is the first fruits, which means he will not be the last. Which means you and I as believers have the hope that we too will conquer the grave. Thirdly, he is preeminent in redemption because he is Lord in fullness, verse 19. He is not partially God, he is fully God. And here is another clear statement of the deity of Christ. I mentioned earlier that he is worthy of our praise because he is God. And this statement expands upon that. All of the attributes, not just some. All of the characteristics, not just some. All of the attributes and characteristics of God reside in Christ because he is fully God. It is easy to imagine from what we know of Jesus while he was on this earth that he is somehow less than fully God. Many would agree that he had God-like qualities, but Paul is saying again that Jesus was and is fully God. Certainly when he walked this earth, there were some limitations to his divine attributes limitations that were voluntary he grew tired and had to rest even as we do he was hungry and needed to eat just as we do the bible tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with god and man we know that when he was physically on this earth he could not be everywhere at once but was limited to one locality even as we are The point being that when Jesus became man, some of his divine divine attributes were temporarily limited. But don't make the mistake, because of what we know from the Gospels, 
that Jesus is somehow less than fully God because Paul reminds us that he is in fact fully God and therefore he is preeminent in redemption. Lastly, he is preeminent in redemption because he is Lord, verse 20, over or of reconciliation. Christ is the one who has reconciled us to God the Father and brought us peace. We're going to talk more about this next time because he goes on to talk about it in verses 21 through 23. But reconciliation implies that something has gone wrong. All of creation has been touched by sin. And the book of Romans tells us that creation groans. That all of creation groans to be made right with God again. Human beings have all been alienated from God by sin. And Christ is worthy of our praise because he has provided a way for us to be reconciled, for that broken relationship to be restored. And that is what salvation is all about, the estranged enemies of God being reconciled to God through what Christ has done for us on Calvary, through the shedding of his blood, as verse 20 says, and the forgiveness of our sins. Now, we must be very careful here that we do not read verse 20 and come to the conclusion of what we call universal salvation. That is, somehow, some way, everyone will be saved. That is not what the Bible teaches. But certainly we notice that theology in our own day. Sometimes when a tragedy comes, the commentators will speak as if everybody affected by that tragedy is now in heaven. And certainly I've said sometimes that when we go to funerals, that certainly is the norm. But the Bible is very clear. Narrow is the way to heaven. And broad is the way to destruction. So there is not universal salvation here. But what Paul is saying is that one day, there will come a day when all things are restored to its rightful place. Creation will be what God intended it to be. Those apart from Christ will be judged in their sin, even as we talked about in our study of Isaiah. And those belonging to Christ will be crowned with righteousness. Or as Paul sums up in Philippians there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved, but it means everyone's going to acknowledge that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. He is preeminent over all things. We've seen this morning that he is preeminent in creation and he is preeminent in redemption. You know, when I go to a busy airport, it's been a while, I haven't traveled in a while, but pre-COVID, when I would go to a busy airport, I'm still amazed at how they do all of that. I've never worked at an airport. I don't know the behind-the-scenes things. But, I mean, there's just all these planes coming and going, seemingly one after another. Not Knoxville. I'm talking about a busy airport like Atlanta. You go to Atlanta, one of the busiest airports in the world, and it seems like every few seconds there's a plane taking off and there's a plane landing. Did you know that the Atlanta airport has five parallel runways? And they service, this is pre-COVID, they service 2,500 planes a day come in and out of there. 275,000 passengers. And I wonder, how are there not collisions? I mean, how are all of these things happening, and yet there's no collisions? And you and I know that that's because there's some air traffic controllers. And they're up in a tower, and Atlanta has the one of the, I think it's the highest tower in the United States. They're up in this tower, and they're in communication with all of those pilots. They know where all of those planes are, and they're directing everything. You know, sometimes we feel like our life is out of control. I want you to understand this morning, there is an unseen, not air traffic controller, but there is an unseen God 
who is orchestrating everything. He is Lord in creation. He is preeminent in creation because he created you and because he continues to sustain you. And he is Lord in redemption because he has reconciled us to Christ. And therefore, even if our lives seem like they are spinning out of control, we are reminded this morning that there is an invisible God who is in control of all of our lives because he in Christ is preeminent. The question I want to leave you with is this. Not is Christ preeminent. He is. The question I want to leave you with is, is this. Is he preeminent in your life? Meaning, is he superior to all other things? Is he first in your life? Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning that you are preeminent in Christ. That you are preeminent in creation and that you are preeminent in redemption. Even when we struggle to understand that and see it in our own lives, you have reminded us through your word that it is indeed true whether we sense it today or not. And I pray that even as you are, in fact, preeminent in all things, we would make sure that you are preeminent in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our church life. That we would not just acknowledge your preeminence, but we would live in accordance to it. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.